Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. We are super excited for today's discussion. Incredibly honored to be joined by colleagues from the University of California at San Francisco Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. We have with us Doctors Emily Cederbaum, Ben Kellerman, and Matt Dursenfeld. And I'm going to ask you all to introduce yourselves to our guests here, but I just have to say that in welcoming you to the show and welcoming you to the Cardio Nerds family, very happy to have all of you guys here, but I've been waiting to have Ben Kellerman, especially on this show, as someone who I started residency with and just learned such a great deal of medicine from. Ben's always been such an incredible role model in his approach to patients, to colleagues, and clinical medicine, clinical reasoning. So I'm just so excited to be here to learn from all of you today. Very special episode for us. So guys, tell the audience who you are. Hi, I'm Emily Cederbaum. I'm so excited to join you from UCSF. I'm a second year fellow. I'm interested in heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, epidemiology, and the social determinants of health. I am originally from the Pacific Northwest, went to University of Washington for undergrad medical school and an MPH. And then I moved down to San Francisco for residency at UCSF and decided to stay on for fellowship. Hi, I'm Ben Kellerman. I'm super excited to be here on the podcast. I'm a fourth-year cardiology fellow. I had the challenge of kind of loving everything during my training, and so I'm pursuing a somewhat less common training pathway. I'm going to do a year of dedicated critical care training this year and then follow it with a year of interventional cardiology training because I loved everything in cardiology, but really what got me going the most is like my time in the cath lab and in the CCU, particularly taking care of cardiogenic shock and acute coronary syndrome and acute cardiac disease. Hi, I'm Matt Durstenfeld, and I'm glad to be here. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow interested in global cardiology, general non-invasive cardiology, HIV, implementation science, and disparities. This year, I'm working on my master's in clinical research and doing research with Dr. Priscilla Shu, a world leader in HIV cardiology. I'm from San Jose, but was on the East Coast at Yale, Penn, then NYU before returning home for cardiology fellowship at UCSF. My wife is a PICU fellow at Stanford, and we have a two-and-a-half-year-old toddler. Amazing. Matt, Ben, Emily, welcome to the show. And Ahmed always gets to hit these off. So he always gets to shout out to the people that we know and love from before we started the show. And so I'm just going to take the opportunity to say that Ben Kelman, 
one of my besties. Definitely saw his passion for critical care. CCU, it's like definitely rubbed off of me. Definitely had a big part of why I'm in cardiology and why I love critical care and intervention as well. So Ben, you haven't aged since the day I last saw you, which that was a great day, which we cannot get to on the air. Not safe for work. But guys, so excited to be in San Francisco. Actually, I've been there before multiple times because I did have family there and I loved it. And I honestly just did all of what the regular tourists do. So could you guys take us to someplace more niche and where the cool kids hang out so we can talk about some serious cardiology? The Fisherman's Wharf. <laughs> we only hang out where the cool kids hang out. So. Like, are we going to Alcatraz? <laughs> That'd be weird. I've actually never been to Alcatraz. Oh, I went to Alcatraz yeah. on Halloween and they, it was very scary. Ooh, freaky. Ooh, that's kind of fun. <laughs> Those are all amazing places. When I'm not in the hospital, I try to be outside. I have a 90 pound dog who loves to be outside hiking, backpacking, going to the beach, exploring all of the things that the Bay Area has to offer. My favorite places in the city are the huge public parks that we're so lucky to have. There's miles of trails, places like Golden Gate Park, the Presidio. Land's End is a particularly special park for me because I just got married there in June in a pandemic wedding. And I'm also looking forward to a trip to Yosemite next month, which is close by. Coming from the chilly Midwest originally and then the East Coast and Baltimore, which gets cold, I really love the natural beauty in San Francisco. I'm always mentioned of Land's End as a favorite spot in the city, but my favorite spot in the Bay Area is just across the Golden Gate Bridge in Mount Tam. It's like a 20-minute drive across the bridge, and you're in this beautiful hilly mountains that overlook the ocean. You can hike and run and bike. So that's probably my favorite spot to go hang out and uh, watch the waves in the ocean. And uh, like Emily and Ben, we really love hiking and camping too. In July, we camped in the Redwoods near Pescadero, went to the tide pools, and we're headed to Tahoe next week, actually. But I have to agree with Emily that Land's End is pretty special. Oh, my gosh. You guys are really just warming my heart. For college, I went to UC Davis. And literally every weekend that we had off, we would try to find time to go to San Francisco and just hang out and enjoy the night scene, the day scene, the waterfront, the museums. I mean, it's just there's so much goodness and culture and natural beauty that happens in San Francisco. So it's just so amazing to have you guys take us there again to relive those wonderful days. We are here in Land's End. And by the way, Emily, congratulations on being married. That's uh, super exciting. And so here we are reliving those memories. Let's do what we love doing. We were hanging out with our friends. Let's get to some cardiology. What do you guys have for us? So we have a great case. At UCSF, we're lucky to have a three-hospital system. It gives us a really well-rounded training experience. Each of the three hospitals has specific strengths and unique patient populations. So I'd love to tell you about a really interesting case that I saw in the consult service at our county hospital, where we spent two months of each clinical year. We were called down to see a 57-year-old man with a history of alcohol use disorder, cirrhosis, atrial fibrillation, alpha thalassemia with iron overload, and active cigarette use, who presented to the emergency department after experiencing hematemesis at home. He was hemodynamically stable at first, so he was actually admitted to the floor service. Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm back in general internal medicine with Ben giving me a presentation on bedside rounds in the intermediate care unit. This is ringing a lot of bells. This reminds me of the case I wrote about in my application for residency. It's wild. You haven't heard a lot of cardiology stuff yet. The other great thing about this case was actually all three of us were involved in the case at various times, but let's dig in more. So can you tell us more about his iron overload? Of course. 
His iron overload was thought to be due to alpha thalassemia and alcohol use. He was previously managed with phlebotomy, but treatment was limited by his anemia. Unfortunately, then he was lost to follow-up, but had very recently reestablished care and was starting a workup with the hematology and oncology team. Was he taking any medications? Yes, he was taking metoprolol 12.5 BID, aspirin 81 daily, ibuprofen as needed, and a handful of vitamins and supplements. It's the Bay Area. Everybody definitely takes vitamins and supplements. His heart rate was in the 110s to 120s with an ECG showing atrial fibrillation. Blood pressure was 90s over 60s. He was saturating 100% on room air, and he was in no acute distress with the uvolemic exam. His lab showed hemoglobin of 8.1 that was down from about 10.2 two weeks prior. Ferritin was over 4,000. He had a normal renal panel and electrolytes. His INR was 1.3. His lactate was 4.2. T-belly was 2.2. And his AST and ALT were 116 and 65, respectively. Wow, guys, this sounds like a really impressive case. And were you guys consulted for the atrial fibrillation or the hemodynamic instability? Why exactly were you consulted? That was the question I was going to ask. Let's say there's some worrying signs for GI bleeding, but not necessarily cardiology. I'm not sure why we need to be involved. I was not yet involved. Emily, why don't you tell us, how, how did we get involved in this case? That's a great question. So at this point, we had not quite been involved yet, but he had been started on treatment for an upper GI bleed with an IV PPI and octreotide. He was given metoprolol for atrial fibrillation with RVR. And he then actually had a melanotic stool associated with worsening RVR, hypotension, and a further hemoglobin drop from 8.1 to 6.6. So he was transferred to the ICU for a bedside scope. And at that time, the GI team saw a gastric varix that was spurting blood. The team was unfortunately unable to intervene on the varix, so he was planned for a trip down to the interventional radiology suite. However, when he was getting prepped up for IR, his hypotension worsened and he was started on multiple pressors. Wow, this is a serious situation that's spiraling out of control. And I've definitely seen this, especially with our cirrhotic patients. But before we even go further, I think there's like a good opportunity to think about atrial fibrillation and RVR and who your patient is. There's a big push to get rate control in your patient or rhythm control. But depending on how you're going to handle your patient with atrial fibrillation with RVR, you may go one of two ways, a rate control strategy or a rhythm control strategy. And this is a great case that I think highlights how much we think about our patient when we approach the strategy. Obviously, if they're hemodynamically compromised that they need to be cardioverted, you got to cardiovert. But when you're thinking about your patient and particularly with rate control, you got to think about them handling slower rates versus handling higher rates. And in this particular patient, we have somebody who has cirrhosis. And I'm not sure if the cirrhosis is from the alcohol disorder or potentially related to the iron overload. But if so, or not even related, he potentially has iron in the heart as well. And that would basically set him up to be somebody that may potentially not tolerate too much rate control. So if the patient is unstable because of the GI bleed, and it's not something that I consider to be related to high heart rates related to the atrial fibrillation, I may be more gentle on the atrial fibrillation and rate control side and focus more of my efforts on the GI resuscitation, which is how we're seeing this patient go here going now. So almost thinking as an you know iron overload as a potential infiltrative cardiomyopathy until I know otherwise. Obviously, if I had more access to data and knew that the heart is functioning perfectly and there's no evidence of an infiltrative cardiomyopathy, then I potentially would be more aggressive with rate control if I thought it would help with his hemodynamics. But these are just things that fly around my mind when I see a patient in the emergency room or kind of off the bat with this kind of medical history. 
Yeah, his rates weren't that high. They were only in the 110s to 120s. And obviously, the highest priority is to try to fix the reversible underlying cause of his RVR. Absolutely. I think, feel like once a week, at least on consults, I, I explained to the consulting team that in patients with AFib, with chronic AFib, RVR really is just their version of sinus tachycardia. And you treat whatever is underlying it, hypovolemia, hemorrhage, whatever it might be, and it'll generally treat the rates as well. Yeah, these are really important points because when you have AFib RVR, is it purely the arrhythmia that's driving the heart rate or is it in response to an underlying hemodynamic trigger? Ben, just like you're saying, this is probably in response to the underlying trigger, right? And we think about the amount of blood loss that will cause vital sign derangements. It's hard to hang our hats on the heart rate here, but heart rate is going to be the first thing that changes. It'll go up. But by the time you have a low blood pressure, you've already lost like 1,500 cc's, two liters of blood. So by the time that a patient who's bleeding has hypotension, they've lost a ton of blood. And so the heart rate response here is probably an adrenergic trigger to try to maintain the cardiac output, which is heart rate times your stroke volume, which is low in this patient, presumably because of low preload from impending hemorrhagic shock. So I think just for the audience, I would be extremely wary to try to do rate control with beta blockers in a patient who has bleeding with hypotension. Absolutely. At this point, the MICU team was doing the opposite. In fact, they were using vasopressors and fluids to try to support the blood pressure. And they were all over this, appropriately managing the patient. Emily, how did cardiology get involved? How were we able to be helpful? Unfortunately, despite the best efforts of the MICU team giving volume resuscitation, blood, and vasopressors, he ended up suffering a code with unstable VT requiring CPR, epinephrine boluses, and a shock. He was started on an amiodarone drip and then subsequently also on a lidocaine drip when he had continued runs of wide complex tachycardia. A massive transfusion protocol was initiated. Surprisingly, the post-code ECG revealed an inferior STEMI. He had ST elevations in leads 2, 3, AVF, and V6, and depressions in 1, AVL, V2, and V3. Wow. So far, this patient's had a GI bleed requiring massive transfusion protocol, a VT arrest, and now a STEMI. This is like the opposite of Occam's razor. More things than you can count. Let's take a minute to go through our differential diagnosis for ST elevations on an ECG. Matt, what's on your mind when you see ST elevations? And are there specific aspects of this patient's presentation or ECG that influence your thinking? In the setting of receiving epinephrine, that can cause transient ST elevations, but these ones persisted. So the first thing to think about is acute plaque rupture, but there are several other possibilities we have to consider. Pericarditis can cause diffuse ST elevations, stress cardiomyopathy, vasospasm, coronary artery dissection, electrolyte abnormalities, demand ischemia, and repolarization abnormalities are among the other causes of ST elevations on an electrocardiogram. So although it's important to think about cath lab activation for STEMI, it's also important to remember these other possible causes of ST elevations. To begin with, the clinical presentation of massive GI bleeding is not typical for an acute coronary syndrome. However, this patient has inferior and lateral ST elevations with evidence of posterior ST elevations as well. ST elevations involving that cardiac geography, inferior, posterior, lateral, are highly suggestive of injury related to a specific coronary artery. Furthermore, the patient had a cardiac arrest, which also raises the likelihood of coronary syndrome, and his initial rhythm was a ventricular tachycardia. All great points, Matt. At this point, we have an unstable patient. He's having a massive GI bleed and ST elevations. Emily, how did you decide what to do next? 
One second, before Emily, you jump in, I got to say, guys, this is like a cardiologist's worst nightmare. Like normally, like maybe you have a troponin elevation in the setting of the GI bleeding and you're like, okay, it's clearly demand or it's clearly related. Let's sort out the GI bleeding. But when pushed to shove with this ECG, which Matt really eloquently described, we're seeing SD elevations in 2, 3, and AVF and with early R waves and posterior SD depressions. These are really concerning for an inferior and posterior MI. And specifically, usually with this level of 3 greater than 2, I'd be thinking about the right coronary artery being involved. So really attributing it to a vessel, but also in the setting of SD elevations acutely like this, in the setting of arrhythmia, I'm thinking of transmural infarct or trans transmural injury. So this is really putting us in the corner that there's something focal going on here. And I definitely want to hear how you manage this next, because this is a really challenging and tricky situation. Just to remind everyone, for people who uh, aren't as familiar with this, like when you go to the cath lab, it's not just a procedure that you can do without heparin. If you go radially, you, you, you would want to use heparin to prevent radial occlusion. And then if you're going groin, you don't have to use heparin up front, but certainly if you are going to be wiring a coronary artery, which you potentially would do here, you really have to anticoagulate this patient. And it's one of those damned if you do and damned if you don't situations. And so this is really a challenge. Dan, these are great points. And it doesn't even bring up the fact that we also have to give antiplatelets to keep that stent open. So a lot of issues here. Exactly. Those were the exact discussions that we were having. This was a really challenging case and a, a multidisciplinary discussion that we ended up having. In figuring out the best course of action, we realized it would be impossible to anticoagulate or give DAP to this patient before treating his active GI bleed. The GI had described as spurting. So despite the STEMI on ECG, he was taken to the IR suite for coiling and obliteration of the gastric pharynx. Subsequently, a STAT echo was performed by Dr. Ben Kellerman at the bedside, and it showed wall motion abnormalities in the inferior and lateral walls, an LVEF of 40 to 45%, severe mitral regurgitation, luckily a normal RV function, and only a very small pericardial effusion. In that setting, his troponin I rose from 19 to 168 to 255, and his pressure requirement increased despite successful management of the GI bleed. Wow. Just to say, the first thing actually I did after hearing about the ST elevations was call the cath attendant to talk about what to do, because I was certainly uncomfortable with the whole situation. And then I spent several hours sitting with the IR team while they treated the bleed just in case, because I didn't know what was going to happen to this guy. But now it sounds like his GI bleed has been treated, but he's getting more unstable. So I think this was when I handed off this very sick patient. It was like, good morning, Emily. Welcome to your, to your shift. What were you thinking about at this time? What did you think about the echo? How did it change how you thought about him? And given the bleeding, what could you offer? What a great gift to give to uh, the morning fellow. This is how I typically <laughs> receive patients from bed. <laughs> yeah. Every, without fail, every time I would hand off to Emily on Monday morning when I was moonlighting, it was something like this. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Very educational for me. <laughs> I blocked off time in the cath lab every Monday for Ben's patients. <laughs> um, so this echo was definitely worrying the inferior and lateral wall motion abnormalities were in the territory of his ST elevations. In combination with his elevated troponin, we now had evidence of myocardial ischemia and infarction in the territory likely attributable to coronary ischemia. The worsening shock was particularly concerning given we felt that he had been resuscitated from his GI bleed. Pump failure and cardiogenic shock were possible and would warrant a trip to the cath lab. Additionally, the presence of worsened mitral regurgitation raised concern for mechanical complication of his MI that might be even contributing to his shock. Wow, that's a lot to be thinking about for a sick patient all of a sudden on a Monday morning. You mentioned worsening cardiogenic shock as an indication for a trip to the cath lab. You also mentioned mitral regurgitation as a complication of an unrevascularized STEMI. 
How do you think about these patients when you're the, you're the CCU fellow? Because that was you that morning. It was you, nobody else. How does the cath lab play into your thinking? And uh, how did you decide what to do for him specifically? As you move forward, recognizing acute mitral regurgitation in the context of an MI is so important and has a lot of bearing because if this indeed is a PAP rupture or mechanical complication, there's high chance that the patient may eventually need cardiothoracic surgery. And so it's really going to influence your next few steps because your plan to give antiplatelet agents, specifically a P2I12, which you would give if you're intending to do a PCI, is going to interfere with any possible surgical intervention. But I would say that in a lot of patients, especially if the posterior wall is involved, this may be ischemic MR from tethering of the related to the posterior medial papillary muscle rather than a PAP muscle rupture. And trying to define that earlier on is it can be helpful because it'll really drastically change the way you approach uh, coronary angiography, stenting, and antiplatelet agents. Yeah, and, and just to speak a little bit more about that ischemic MR, there's kind of two flavors of ischemic MR. One is from like an old MI where there's remodeling. And so the wall that's associated with the PAP muscle might be pulled apart or dilated out or even aneurysmal, and that would actually pull the PAP muscle away. And remember, these PAP muscles are basically tethered to the valve, and their job is to contract when the valve is being forced closed by the ventricular pressures. And they basically hold those flaps of the mitral valve in play like a parachute so that it catches the blood and doesn't allow it into the left atrium. But remember that these PAP muscles have to actually relax and contract in order to basically maintain the fidelity of the mitral valve. And so if the PAP muscle becomes ischemic, what will happen is it'll contract down. And when it does so, it doesn't relax and allow the mitral valve to function normally. And in doing so, it allows for acute mitral regurgitation. And remember that when the left atrium, as we made the point on several episodes already, when the left atrium is not primed well to accept that extra volume load from the left ventricle, that blood immediately gets shoved into the pulmonary vasculature and could result in really acute pulmonary edema. Now, we haven't had necessarily an actual PAP rupture, so this is reversible. And so restoring blood flow can actually reverse this ischemia. And so that's why sometimes ischemic MR in the setting of an acute coronary syndrome could be very transient, like the patient starts to flash, and then you may get them less ischemic with nitrates or other kinds of medicines, basically get them less ischemic, and then that ischemic MR will go away. And you may not even hear it with your stethoscope or see it with your echo. But when they become ischemic again, it gets revealed again. And so that is not something that's atypical to be seen in the cath lab. And so somebody like this who really had their ECG changes like pretty immediate in front of our eyes, those would be things that I'd be thinking of, especially if they're now going into pulmonary edema in this particular setting, especially given the inferior posterior MI that we're seeing where one of those PAP muscles just happens to lay. Yeah. In our particular case, he wasn't really in pulmonary edema yet, but Ben's Stat Echo did pick up some MR, and we were really thinking that it was more likely to be ischemic MR from dysfunction of the papillary muscle rather than flail leaflet from a ruptured papillary muscle, for example. And in a case like this where the patient is getting so sick before our eyes, I usually think about reasons to pursue emergent invasive angiography or to bring them down to the cath lab in general. Um, especially in these patients with acute coronary syndrome. There's a few indications to go through. One is ST elevations, which he already has. Another is cardiogenic shock, which he may also have. Unstable ventricular arrhythmias, which he had. And mechanical complications, as well as refractory chest pain, which we couldn't really ask him about because at this point he was too unstable. The cath lab's a great place for these patients because of how much can be done there. 
Coronary angiography and revascularization can treat the inciting myocardial ischemia. Right heart catheterization can identify low cardiac output and shock state. Also, heart catheterization can evaluate for mechanical complications, including right heart failure, VSD, if you do a shunt run, mitral regurgitation, where you might see big V waves. And lastly, a balloon pump or other mechanical circulatory support can be utilized while you're there in the cath lab to treat ongoing shock. Wow. I heard Amit call the cath lab the table of truth. So it sounds like there's a lot that's being learned in the lab. And I think an important point is since a big concern of this patient is his bleeding and whether he would tolerate anticoagulation, it's important to recognize also that there's a lot that the cath lab can offer both diagnostically and therapeutically that may not require anticoagulation. For example, a right heart cath can identify both the shock state as well as the hemodynamics, uh, the uh, mechanical complication. Coronary angiography, as Dan described, if you use femoral axis, doesn't necessarily require anticoagulation. And a balloon pump potentially could be placed, particularly if you think that his shock is due to low cardiac output or severe mitral regurgitation leading to low cardiac output. And if it's kept at one-to-one, uh, so the balloon pump's inflating with every heartbeat, may not require anticoagulation for that during that time period. So what did you guys do? We were still very worried because he was only a couple of hours out from his life-threatening bleed. So we decided to trial a heparin bolus and drip as well as an aspirin load before taking him down to the cath lab. That way we could observe him to see if he was able to tolerate this without re-bleeding from the gastric barracks. After he tolerated this medication for several hours with stable hemoglobin checks, he was taken down to the cath lab. Matt was the cath fellow at the time. Matt, could you take us through the cath findings? For sure. We were really nervous about this case. We were nervous about his GI bleed, but the GI team and the IR team, which we spoke to, reassured us that he was unlikely to re-bleed from his treated varics. We ended up using right radial and right brachial access. Remember, we had already trialed him on a heparin bolus and drip, so we were less worried about the acute use of heparin during the case. On right heart cath, his right atrial pressure was 12. His mean pulmonary artery pressure was 26. His wedge was 22 with an LVDP of 20. And his cardiac output was 6 with an index of 3.4. So mildly elevated filling pressures with a normal cardiac output while he was on norepinephrine. Matt, actually, can I ask you, do you have the PA systolic and diastolic just to consider his RV function with a PAPI? Because thinking about what the next steps may be, it may be hemodynamic support if needed, or mechanical circulatory support rather, and understanding or localizing the source of ventricular dysfunction could be really helpful in determining the next steps. Yeah, his PA systolic was 37 and his PA diastolic was 20, which correlated with his LVDP. Matt, were you surprised by these numbers? Oh yeah, I was very surprised. I expected his cardiac output to be much lower. And I expected his filling pressures to be higher than they were. Despite his massive bleed, he had been resuscitated with a lot of fluid, a lot of blood. So I was definitely surprised by these numbers. Oh, I was just going to ask, do you know what his SVR was at this point? Because potentially maybe he has a what appears to be a normal cardiac output, but if his SVR is very low, then we may see, okay, was this sort of like a vasodilatory phase of a hemorrhagic shock or of a cardiogenic shock where the filling pressures and the cardiac output may seem okay, the SVR could potentially help us isolate the cause of hypotension. His SVR was about 700. So really not very impressive numbers. Yeah. And one other thing I do recall from the tracings is that there wasn't significant V-wave suggestive of really severe mitral regurgitation. So he had mildly elevated filling pressures with a normal cardiac output uh, while on some norepinephrine. He had persistent ST elevations at the time, still going to the cath lab. One other surprise was that this was about 12 hours or so after 
his initial ST elevations showed up on the ECG, and he hadn't started to queue out yet. Definitely suspicious that maybe there's more to this. So I I was just going to say, when you have numbers that don't really reflect what you expect, the first thing that you start to think about is the fidelity of your actual testing. And I'm sure that they basically zeroed all the lines and made sure that all the tracings were as they expected, looked like legitimate tracings. And then one thing that I do with thermodilution is you can also look at the SAT. The PA SAT could be very helpful. And basically, if your cardiac output is like pretty bad and your PA SAT is pretty low, then you're like, okay, this kind of works together. And on the other hand, if your PA SAT is not on the low side and your cardiac output or index is also not on the low side, you're like, okay, that goes together. Kind of fact checking yourself within the same test. It could be very helpful. Yeah, the FIC, which admittedly is not with a measured, it correlated decently well with the thermodilution. But I think Matt's point is important that an indirect FIC is really not your gold standard for cardiac output. Your best closest to the gold standard, which is a direct FIC, is your thermodilution if you do it systematically when you're in the lab. So that's you measure it three times. And if they're within 10% of each other, you take it. And if they're not, you do five. And if you do it in a systematic way, always the same, it's a reliable test and you shouldn't have to be, with some rare exceptions, using FIC. He was also intubated and critically ill. So there are a lot of assumptions that an indirect FIC are making that make it somewhat less accurate. Yeah. And I, I think that we did five, even though the first three correlated, just to be sure, because it didn't make that much sense to us at first. And we did the right heart cap before we did the coronary angiogram. He did have a, a PA sat of about 60%. So everything lined up together. And why did you guys decide to do the right heart cath first? I think at this point, we were 12 hours out from his initial ST elevations. And we just really wanted to know what was going on with his shock. We thought that would inform what decisions we might make in terms of next steps if we found something. All right. Sounds good. So the die don't lie, as somebody told us recently. <laughs> so we decided to shoot the left coronary artery first because based on his electrocardiogram, we suspected the right was the likely culprit. His left had a mild lesion, maybe 30% in the LED and a 70% lesion in the second diagonal branch of the LED. His circ looked okay. Then we turned our attention to the right coronary where we found an 80% and a distal 95% lesion that we thought was the culprit for the STEMI. Take me through that because that's an important point in STEMI. We know from trials like culprit shock and observational data Going in when someone's in shock and fixing everything probably isn't a good strategy and maybe associated with harm. How do you identify the culprit lesion? You said you thought it was a distal RCA and not that diagonal lesion. How do you figure that out? First of all, we had the clue of the electrocardiogram. So that helps us localize. When you have transmural infarct, you can think about where the ST elevations are in the electrocardiogram and how that maps onto the anatomy. The second thing is we had the echocardiogram to correlate wall motion abnormalities in that same distribution. So really everything was fitting together. And that was the most severe lesion. And given the fact that he was still having ST elevations, even 12 hours in, we thought maybe this plaque rupture event, if that's what had happened, maybe in the setting of his GI bleed, he had been transiently occluding the vessel. We hadn't been doing electrocardiograms continuously all 12 hours. We really thought that was our best guess at the culprit. That's great. The EKG suggested ischemia in the inferior wall and the posterolateral wall. So that's your posterior descending artery and your posterior lateral branch. In this case, your RCA supplied both the posterior descending artery and the posterior lateral branches. Based on the ECG and the echo, you were confident that the RCA lesion was a culprit. So did you put in a stent? And how did you decide? Did you put in a bare metal stent? People talk about that or drug eluting stents. What did you do? So one thing that our masterful teachers in the cath lab here teach us is that it's important to 
get the best pictures you can to size your stents if that's what you're going to do next. And so we're taught to always inject intracoronary vasodilators. Now we paused and thought to ourselves, do we really want to do that in this patient on pressors? But we had these multiple lesions and it was definitely not the classic story for a plaque rupture event. So we decided to inject intracoronary nitroglycerin and nicardipine to check for vasospasm. Remarkably, the lesions completely resolved and the ST elevations on ECG disappeared in the lab. And the norepinephrine, we were able to just wean it off and his blood pressures actually went up. Wow. Incredible. It was great. Yeah, guys, looking at these films, they're really impressive. And again, they're going to be available on the blog that comes out with this episode. So definitely click on the episode show notes and check them out. These are super impressive films. But even in the first shots, those pre-vasodilator shots, I am noticing something very interesting about this right coronary artery. You see the catheter basically engaged in the right coronary artery, and you see a very nice normal caliber or fatter sized coronary artery at the proximal part. But immediately, it looks almost like a snake head and then immediately becomes like the snake body as the right coronary artery goes all the way down around the AV groove and then basically ends up becoming the PDA and the PLV branch. And so it's like this like kind of head shaped, normal sized coronary artery and then diffusely thinned all the way down. But then on top of that, like towards the snake's tail in my analogy, it gets really tight, which is again, what we were calling the culprit lesions. So even like in these first shots, there's some evidence to me that potentially there's like a mismatch between different parts of the artery than the other part of the artery. And it almost looks like spasm all the way through the entire artery with different focal parts that are worse than others. But this is the opposite of what you would expect with catheter induced vasospasm. It's quite the opposite, actually. Where the artery and the catheter are engaged is actually not spasmed. It's distal to that, just distal to that, where you see the spasm almost starting from way up top in the artery. And then when you see these basically follow-up images, the entire artery resumes the caliber of the original proximal right coronary artery, which basically tells you that the entire artery is spasmed down in those initial shots without vasodilator. But within the area of spasm, there are certain areas that are more spasm than others. And then when you actually look at the films where there was the dilators have been given and the artery looks plumper, what you can see is that there are areas where the artery was the tightest in the initial films. There is some disease there. So there's some coronary artery disease at the sites where the lesions looked obstructive that Basically, we are now like exposing after we took away that vasospasm from the artery with the dilators. Really interesting. It's really interesting. I definitely recommend you checking out these films. Yeah, it was a crazy case. STEMI turned out to all be predominantly due to coronary vasospasm, which is wild. And I have to say, if I was this patient and I were to choose causes and ideologies of uh, STEMI, this is exactly what I would have chosen for myself because it means that you don't need a stent and therefore you don't need antiplatelet agents to keep that stent open in somebody who came in with a hemodynamically significant variceal bleed. For sure. This was absolutely the best case scenario for him. And in this particular case, giving intracoronary vasodilators also seemed a little bit risky in somebody already on vasopressors and maybe even a little counterintuitive, but it really was the key to this case. Ben, could you guide us through the physiology behind vasospasm and what we do about it? Yeah, sure. So coronary vasospasm is a phenomenon of severe derangement of epicardial coronary vascular tone that leads to profound vasoconstriction and associated ischemia. 
The epicardial dysfunction may or may not be associated with microvascular dysfunction, but it often occurs only with epicardial spasm. The classic teaching you hear about is Prince Metal's angina. So that's where you have typical angina with associated EKG changes, either self-limited or results with nitratus. Administration is often associated with emotional distress or changes in sympathetic tone. Risk factors for coronary vasospasm include cigarette smoking, sympathomimetic drugs like cocaine or methamphetamines, magnesium deficiency, medication effects including serotonergic agents or catecholamines, and instrumentation, as Matt and Dan mentioned, with a catheter. It seems to be more common in patients under 50, and there may be a genetic predisposition as well. Often, a short time frame is helpful in distinguishing vasospastic angina from acute coronary syndrome because it, it typically is transient, reversible, and resolves. In fact, we, we see a lot of post-arrest patients at SFGH, and it's not uncommon that you see transient ST elevations immediately post-cardiac arrest that occur within minutes, often in the setting of epinephrine use during resuscitation, and then resolve on a repeat EKG. What is unique in this case is the persistence of ST elevation and the myocardial ischemia that persists to the point there was infarction, as demonstrated by elevated troponin and wall motion abnormalities. However, given cocaine and smoking are risk factors for both vasospasm and for acute coronary syndromes, patients with vasospasm often have focal obstructive coronary disease as well. So cases that don't fit a classic pattern of vasospasm, such as this case, warrant angiography for evaluation for underlying plaque rupture or for something that, that surprises you, like a plaque rupture event that's not due to vasospasm. As Dan mentioned, it's important to be able to identify angiographic patterns that look that are more suggestive of vasospasm as opposed to plaque rupture. So it can be distinguished from plaque rupture in several ways. Often the non-diseased vessel is smooth and has no focal obstructive disease. So the, the rest of the vessel is non-diseased. And then there is a lesion that is long, smooth, concentric, and tapered as opposed to a, an ulcerated eccentric lesion that you typically see in plaque rupture. And as Matt mentioned, for nearly all coronary angiograms, intracoronary administration of vasodilator agents is useful to remove the confounding effect of coronary vasospasm and can be helpful to distinguish spasm from obstructive plaque. Therapy for coronary vasospasm acutely in the lab involves injection of vasodilator agents like ferapamil, nicarpine, or nitroglycerin, typically intracoronary. Long-term therapy for vasospasm uses oral nitrates and calcium channel blockers, as well as advocating for smoking cessation to control vasospasm. Ben, that was great teaching on coronary vasospasm. And again, thank God that's what this patient had because it really simplifies the next steps moving forward. But I have to recount one of the most interesting cases I had when I was in the CICU as a first year was a patient who came in with also an inferoposterior ST elevation MI with a positive troponin elevation, ongoing chest pain. And so he went to the cath lab and also had RCA vasospasm that improved with intracoronary nitroglycerin, and that was the diagnosis of vasospasm. But going back in that patient's particular history, prior to developing his sudden onset chest pain, he was on a diet and working out and doing the best things he could for his health, but he essentially drank a milkshake with some random additives. I'm not quite sure what was in it. He doesn't either. But shortly after drinking the milkshake, he developed whole body hives. And so he's having an allergic reaction. And so in this case, it was essentially an allergic vasospastic angina. And the name for that syndrome is Kunis syndrome, K-O-U-N-I-S syndrome, which is Jay Patel, my intervention fellow, taught me at the time. And so I thought it was just such a fascinating syndrome where you get an allergic reaction that leads to coronary disease that can present in three different forms. It can be triggered by any host of allergic triggers like drugs, 
environmental factors, infections, but there are three types. Type 1 is vasospastic allergic angina, where essentially is vasospasm and can progress to infarction. Type 2 is allergic myocardial infarction, where you have a patient with pre-existing coronary disease and actually has plaque rupture because of that inflammatory milieu. And type 3 is stent thrombosis. And in these patients in particular, they've shown that if you do coronary aspiration, you'll find eosinophils in mast cells. So there's a very different coronary etiology. And this is less common now because they've moved away from using antigenic stent polymers with nickel and rather use chromium and cobalt now. So it's just such an interesting syndrome with allergic causes of coronary syndromes. And your patient sort of reminded me of, of that because the EKG and the coronary distribution at least was similar. That's like a fascinating case. And our early, we're all young cardio nerds, but our careers are punctated by very impressionable clinical situations like the one you just described. And I had a similar situation of a patient who was on the oncology center with a severe, profound thrombocytopenia related to his chemotherapy. And he presented very similarly to this. He wasn't having a GI bleed, but he was really hypotensive and was on epinephrine because of it. And then it eventually ended up having really profound ST elevations. And this time it was anterior, different, a, a different flavor, but very similar. Anterior, really classic ST elevations. And so we ended up deciding back and forth and we ended up talking to the oncologist. It was a big powwow, very similar course. We ended up going to the lab and finding lesions very similar, but they were in the LAD and coming back in with a guide ready to stent and basically gave the dilators. And lo and behold, like these focal lesions just like disappeared. And they came back and the dilators were given again, and they disappeared. And even though this patient had a really good outcome, the, the patient that I'm talking about did not, he continued to have the SD elevations. and was just, it was in shock all night long. And unfortunately did not make it till the morning, despite maximal vasodilators, but while supporting his pressure, it was challenging. And so vasospasm could be a real hemodynamic compromise. And so when I reflect on our patient's case over here, where we have this patient who's really not doing well hemodynamically, has an insult from bleeding, but also has this somewhat cardiac-focused insult as well, ends up getting the resuscitation for the bleeding, ends up coming to the lab and surprises us with these pretty benign right heart cath findings. And then subsequently, we find out that this is vasospasm. The way I put this together, and maybe you guys did as well, is that really the guy's shock was from his bleeding, as we expected. And it didn't help to have ischemia at the same time, because while vasospasm is occurring, there is ischemia, and that's evidenced by this wall motion abnormality. So there is actual ischemia. And I wonder if during the time where he's hypotensive because of all the bleeding and also because of the vasospasm, maybe he did have a little bit more MR that we expected. But then after that 12 hours and we resuscitated him with volume and blood and also corrected his GI bleed with the IR. And now that we come to the cath lab, he just has this insult with the RCA. And potentially that wasn't enough to make him have the severe hemodynamic compromise that he had yesterday when he had those two hits. And that's why the right heart cath was surprising. And then eventually he had a much better outcome. Yeah. And I think, Ahmed, to your point, thinking about people with allergic vasospasm, this is the opposite because you think about what you treat allergic and anaphylactic reactions with, it's epinephrine. In his case, I think he was getting vasospasm from the norepinephrine and the, the epinephrine he got during the code and then the continued vasopressor use for his shock. Yeah, he was really a setup for this, right? Because he not only had underlying coronary disease uh, in the area of vasospasm, he also was given vasoconstrictors to essentially keep him alive. And so totally makes sense that this uh, he was set up for this. 
Exactly. So initially, we just avoided epinephrine, and he remained really stable. He was transferred out of the ICU and was getting very close to discharge when he had a two-minute episode of hypotension and bradycardia with recurrence of the inferior ST elevations. It only lasted for two minutes, and it went away. At that point, we decided to start an oral nitrate and planned to start a calcium channel blocker if vasospasm recurred. He was also encouraged to quit smoking, as smoking is a significant risk factor for coronary vasospasm, like we learned from Ben earlier. His repeat echo showed normal systolic function, moderate MR, and the previously seen wall motion abnormalities were no longer present. He was discharged with close follow-up after this two-week hospitalization. So this was a case of an upper GI bleed requiring vasopressor support that led to cardiac arrest with a STEMI that was all caused by coronary vasospasm and ultimately resolved with intracoronary vasodilators and then oral long-term therapy with calcium channel blockers and nitrate. What a fantastic case, guys, and thanks for bringing it up. It's so helpful and really got us thinking about so many different important key points in cardiology. But one thing that I did want to go back to what you said, Ben, early on in the case, you mentioned that we were dealing with two conflicting issues and you reached out to discuss the case with your attending. And I just wanted to highlight that is such a beautiful thing. The the field of cardiology really allows for that collaboration and that basically putting minds together. It's basically built like that by the fact that we have cardiomyopathy people putting their heads together with interventional teams and interventional teams putting their heads together with general cardiology and then the prevention teams. The whole field is really built by that cross-collaboration. And I could see even by the way that you guys handed off this case to each other, that was really embedded into the fabric of your program and the fabric of your clinical practice. So guys, why don't you guys tell us what made you choose cardiology and particularly what drew you to UCSF for your training? Great. So there are so many things I love about being here at UCSF. One of the biggest draws for me is our three hospital system. It lets us have such a wide range of clinical experiences. It would be really difficult, I think, to find that at any single hospital. We have the main university hospital at UCSF. Then we also have the Department of Public Health County Hospital, the general. And we have our VA hospital where we get the privilege of treating our veterans. There are also so many research opportunities here. The faculty are extremely approachable. Another unique thing about our program is our flexible third year. We have two intensive clinical years, basically all of our clinical rotations up front. And the third year is traditionally a research year, but it can actually be used to pursue classes, further your experience in imaging or cath, or to pursue your other academic interests. And it's, it has just so much flexibility to work with. Of course, being in the beautiful Bay Area doesn't hurt at all. And my very favorite thing I have to say about UCSF is getting to be with my amazing co-fellows. I am so lucky to get to work with them and hang out with them. It's it's a really fun and supportive group of people, and we all get very close during the years of fellowship. Yeah, UCSF is an incredible place. The quality of teaching and mentoring is outstanding. I think the three hospital system, particularly the, the county hospital, you just see things that I feel like I, I wouldn't see anywhere else, and you end up growing so much through that. And through your co-fellows experiences, every Thursday morning, we have a, an hour-long deep dive in the case just like this. And there are, it's so incredible to hear these cases that my co-fellows are managing. Even though it's early in the morning, the room, it's now a virtual room, but the room is always packed with just amazing clinicians and senior faculty members who come to pass along these amazing pearls for each case. And so, you know, even though I'm on my critical carrier, I'm often on other services and have pre-rounding, et cetera, I still try to join while I'm doing my pre-rounding and, and hear about the cases. So when Amit and Dan reached out to me about presenting a case, the hardest question really was like, what case do we present? Because every week there's a case just like this, basically. And I think that the great thing about that is that then at the end of, really at the end of your second year, 
you feel incredibly comfortable with your general cardiology skills between your time at all three hospitals. So whether it's procedures, whether it's cases, whether it's consults, things like this, you're comfortable handling, even if it's two in the morning or two in the afternoon sometimes. And then I think the best thing for me has been my co-fellows. We used to stay and hang out together until all the work was done. It ended up being a group process. People used to tease us because we would walk into the ICU with four people to do one TVP until we were all signed off. It's just such a supportive place. Even though during COVID, we haven't had as much in-person time, we still have weekend Zoom happy hour hangouts that we've organized ourselves. There's a lot to love about UCSF, but my co-fellows made it an experience I wouldn't trade for anywhere else. I completely agree. Besides returning home to the Bay Area, my top two reasons I came to UCSF were the strength in clinical training across the full spectrum of general cardiology, especially the opportunity to take care of patients at a safety net type institution. And secondly, UCSF strengths in global health and training opportunities and research. Like Emily and Ben, I'm especially grateful to have amazing co-fellows. Our class organized a second year retreat in Napa last year, and we really also have a great relationship, very collegial with our attending cardiologists, like Ben talking to his attending early in the morning. We really get along well with our attendings and frequently text them. Like Emily, I do appreciate our three different hospital sites. I think that our program really is about learning by doing. And so much of our first year is learning how to do cath and echo, doing CCU and consults. But even as the first year fellow, you get to be first operator during STEMIs at the general. You get to put in pacemakers, you get to do TEs, even AFib ablations. As a second year fellow, I did become much more comfortable doing all those things. And then you get to really take on a lot more independence, especially during your time at the VA. It has a lot of bread and butter cardiology, but the San Francisco VA is really special because it's the referral center for coronary and structural cases. So we get cases from Oregon, from Nevada, and all over Northern California with really amazing interventional attendings there. It's such a formative experience to become ready for independent practice with amazing support and the team atmosphere there. And now I'm really enjoying diving headfirst into research and being back in school as part of my master's in clinical research. I just turned in my final projects for our summer term. And one of the nice things is that's fully paid for. I don't have to worry about any of the tuition costs and really have protected time to pursue those goals of mine of becoming a global health cardiologist. And I just want to emphasize one thing that Matt mentioned, but didn't really highlight when we're talking about amazing things about UCSF. At San Francisco General, there are no advanced fellows. So the, the only fellows at the hospital are general cardiology fellows. So this whole case from two in the morning when they called me about the VT till 10 p.m. the next day when Matt did the coronary angiogram was general cardiology fellows. So we manage all the post-arrest patients, the STEMIs, the balloon pumps, the TVPs, the permanent pacemakers, all the device interrogations, all these things run through the general cardiology fellow. And if you need help, there's always super fellows, EP and advanced heart failure and interventional who are available for phone consults. And your attendings are incredibly available to talk to you and help you and do things with you and are very comfortable doing procedures with new fellows. But you get a level of kind of first operator and hands-on experience that you wouldn't get really, I think, many other places. And it's, it's a pretty great experience. It's definitely a fellow favorite. The crown gem. <laughs> you guys, you're making me have so many warm feeling and fuzzies about UCSF. And I think the three hospital system brings with it such an incredible diversity of clinical experience and exposure and training. It was very apparent when I interviewed there, and it was just such a strength of the program. And of course, the opportunities for mentorship and research, and you get to do all of this 
in such a gorgeous city. So thank you so much for taking us out around town. We had such a blast learning from you. Terrific case and beautiful pearls. Couldn't imagine a better way to spend our, what's today? Tuesday? I'm having such a fun time. I forget the day. Monday. Monday. I think it's Monday. 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 Yeah. It's only Monday. <laughs> I couldn't imagine a better way to spend any day of the week. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us on. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, this was so you. much fun. You guys rock! We're so excited to hear now from Dr. Binan Phan, who is one of the most loved cardiology attendings at the General Hospital. Thank you so much, Emily. And a big hello to the Cardio Nerds Nation. My name is Binan Phan. I am a professor of medicine at UCSF and a general non-invasive cardiologist at San Francisco General Hospital. After listening to a few Cardio Nerds podcasts, I can understand why so many students, trainees, and providers have really fallen in love with cardio nerds and now treat it as a go-to resource for amazing cases in cardiology, all done in a very welcoming and fun style. Because of that, I'm honored to be here with you and super excited to provide you with some learning points that I took away from this really fascinating case. But first, I do want to congratulate our three amazing fellows Ben, Matt, and Emily for presenting this case. You all did such a wonderful job, not only in your thoughtful care of this patient, but also in your fantastic discussion of the case on the podcast. Now, let's jump into this really interesting case. For review, this is a case of a 57-year-old man with a history of alcohol use disorder, cirrhosis, AFib not on anticoagulation, alpha-thalassemia, and active smoking, who presented to the hospital with hematemesis and found to have an active GI bleed that was complicated by shock, malignant arrhythmia, ST elevation on ECG, and ultimately diagnosed with coronary vasospasm. Now, there are three particularly interesting areas of discussion that I wanted to focus on this case. The first deals with the management of AFib in critically ill patients. The patient presented with a massive bleed and hemodynamic instability suggestive of hypovolemic shock. In this setting, he was noted to have AFib with RVR. Now, AFib is very common in patients admitted to critical care units, and new onset AFib in the hospital has been associated with worse outcomes. AFib has the potential to cause a number of hemodynamic cardiac derangements, impairment of LV filling seen with fast, irregular heart rates, loss of atrial contraction, and AV dyssynchrony found in AFib can all contribute to reducing cardiac output. This can worsen hypotension in patients who are already in shock. Loss of the atrial kick can be particularly detrimental to patients with diastolic dysfunction who have worsened LV compliance and depend on the atrial contraction for most of their LV filling. This can lead to elevations in left-sided filling pressures and pulmonary congestion. AFib can precipitate a worsen myocardial ischemia due to increasing oxygen demand from elevated heart rates and increased end-diastolic pressures. While AFib can have these unfavorable hemodynamic and clinical consequences, the acute control of AFib may not be necessary in all critically ill patients. Now, of course, if the patients present with hemodynamic compromise from AFib with RVR, then immediate rhythm management with cardioversion is clearly indicated. 
However, if the AFib is not the primary driver of the critical illness, or the AFib is not significantly impacting hemodynamics, then urgent control may not be as critical. Understanding the trigger for AFib or the driver of the rapid ventricular response is an important initial step to AFib management. In the ICU, a number of AFib triggers are present, including increased inflammation, electrolyte abnormalities, elevated catecholamine state, and concurrent use of vasopressors. And with catecholamine surge, the RVR may represent an appropriate physiologic increase in heart rate to augment cardiac output in the face of higher metabolic demands. Now, controlling heart rate in this case may actually be harmful for the patient. Several groups have looked into the impact of AFib in cardiogenic shock patients. Subgroup analysis from the culprit shock trial showed that in patients presenting with an acute MI and shock, the presence of AFib did not significantly worsen mortality or increase the risk of recurrent myocardial infarction or stroke. Therefore, an initial approach to managing AFib in the ICU patient may be to explore and eliminate offending triggers. This may include treating infections, correcting electrolyte abnormalities, or choosing appropriate vasopressors. In our patient, he presented with an initial problem of hemorrhagic shock that was the main driver of his hemodynamics. He was an AFib with an initial ventricular rate of 110 to 120 that was driven likely by an increase in sympathetic activation in attempts to maintain cardiac output in the face of hypovolemia and anemia from his active bleeding. Additionally, the concurrent use of beta-adrenergic vasopressor agents likely also contributed to his tachycardia. Therefore, it was appropriate for the team not to aggressively treat his RVR, but rather targeted their efforts at managing the AFib trigger with volume resuscitation and correcting his underlying bleeding. In addition to AFib management, the second area that I found really interesting in this case was the clinical dilemma related to dealing with a possible STEMI in the setting of a GI bleed. Now, patients presenting with STEMI and an acute GI bleed are not common. In the ACUITY trial, only 1.3% of all ACS cases had clinically significant GI bleeding. However, when they do present together, they often bring up multiple clinical conundrums. Now, the decision to bring someone to the cath lab to intervene during a STEMI should be based upon evaluating the benefits of opening an occluded artery against the procedural risk. In the vast majority of patients, this calculus favors the benefits of acute intervention, particularly if there are high-risk features including cardiogenic shock, malignant arrhythmia, or mechanical valve complication, all of which were possibly present for our patient. Data from the shock trial demonstrated significant survival benefit at six months for patients presenting with cardiogenic shock who were treated with emergency revascularization as compared to patients who were randomized to just an initial medical approach. While the benefits of revascularization and STEMI are clear, there are associated risks with GI bleeding. Massive bleeding post-STEMI can result in hypovolemic shock, worsen ischemia, reinfarction, and reduce cardiac function. The ACUITY trial also showed us that patients who had major bleeding associated with an ACS had higher rates of death, reinfarction, and need for revascularization. Additionally, 
Patients who develop post-ACS bleeding and require blood transfusions often have higher rates of cardiac events and mortality. In addition to considering the impact of bleeding, the decision whether to take a patient to the cath lab may be impacted by the severity or extent of the MI. For an uncomplicated inferior STEMI, which has a favorable diagnosis and a mortality of less than 10%, deferring intervention may be reasonable. But if there is a large anterior MI, cardiogenic shock, or mechanical valve complication, things that point towards significantly higher mortality, that may be reasonable to consider taking the patient to the lab for an intervention, even in the setting of a significant bleed. If taken to the cath lab, the interventional team may consider strategies to open occluded vessels without stenting and possibly avoid the immediate use of dual antiplatelet therapy. Some of these invasive strategies may include an initial attempt with thrombus aspiration or plain balloon angioplasty, and a subsequent decision on whether a stent should be placed could be contingent on whether there remains residual thrombus, reduced TIMI flow, or ongoing hemodynamic compromise. If stenting is planned, periprocedural heparin may be favored given that it can be quickly reversed. In terms of P2Y12 receptor inhibitors, ticagrelor may be the preferred agent given its rapid onset, reversal binding of the P2Y12 receptor, and slightly faster offset compared to clopidogrel. In our patient, given the history of massive bleeding, pre-procedural anticoagulation was started with heparin, which allowed the team to test whether the patient would tolerate additional anticoagulation. Luckily, the patient did not need revascularization and stenting, given the absence of an acute occlusion. And that brings me to the third area that I found really interesting about the case, which is the manifestation of vasospasm in a patient presenting with an acute bleed. As mentioned in the case, coronary vasospasm usually involves transient, focal or diffuse narrowing of one or more epicardial arteries. The pathogenesis of vasospasm is thought to be due to an imbalance of sympathetic and parasympathetic activity, endothelial dysfunction, or microvascular disease. There are a number of triggers including cigarette smoking, stimulant drugs such as cocaine and amphetamines, allergic reactions, and coronary instrumentation. Given the short duration, cardiac markers are typically negative in patients presenting with coronary vasospasm. The diagnosis of vasospasm can be suggested by identifying transient SC elevation with chest pain on 12-lead ECG or ambulatory ECG monitoring. Vasospasm can be confirmed on coronary angiography using provocative tests such as the administration of acetylcholine. And management usually involves symptomatic treatment with calcium channel blockers or nitrates. Now, in our patient presenting with ST elevation and ECG in the setting of bleed, the diagnosis of vasospasm was clear after the left heart cath demonstrated spasm. And in retrospect, it was easy to understand that he had multiple triggers for vasospasm, including active smoking, presence of coronary atherosclerosis, recent and ongoing vasopressor therapy, as well as increased autonomic stimulation associated with the shock. However, prior to the left heart cath, there are a number of factors that made it challenging to consider a diagnosis of vasospasm up front. First, the patient had prolonged ST elevation for several hours and elevated cardiac markers, which would not be typical for transient vasospasm. Additionally, the patient had ongoing shock, 
malignant arrhythmia, wall motion abnormalities, and significant mitral valve regurgitation that all were suggestive of possible complications from a STEMI. These findings would have been atypical for coronary vasospasm. In this setting, therefore, it was appropriate to have a presumptive diagnosis of a STEMI. Fortunately, the diagnosis of vasospasm was made in the cath lab and an appropriate treatment was provided. The patient's hemodynamics quickly improved and he was able to be weaned off all of his vasopressor therapies. The patient ultimately went on to recover. This case really had it all. It was super interesting based upon the high acuity and complexity of care associated with a GI bleed, possible STEMI, and all the hemodynamic cardiac derangements. It was challenging due to the clinical conundrums that came with thinking about anticoagulation and stenting in a patient with an active GI bleed. It also had an atypical zebra diagnosis with coronary vasospasm. I want to thank our amazing fellows, Emily, Matt, and Ben, for caring for this patient and presenting this case. I also want to thank the Cardio Nerds Nation for this great opportunity to provide commentary to this case. It has been such a super fun experience. So thank you so much. Take care, everyone, and happy learning. Now for a word from our beloved program director, Atif Kassim. Hi, this is Arthur Kassim. I'm the program director at UCSF. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist who focuses on structural echo novel therapies for valvular heart disease, and I run the Echo Core Lab here. I'm also very interested in medical education research. I would like to thank the CardioNerds team for giving me an opportunity to speak about our cardiovascular program. It's very admirable that they're using these podcasts to showcase specific disease entities, fellows, and programs across the country, especially during a time when virtual learning has become ever the more important. As you just heard, Ben, Matt, and Emily discussed a wonderful case of a difficult-to-manage shock patient with competing pathologies, a massive GI bleed and STEMI. Critical thinking was vital to successfully managing this patient in active collaboration between IR, GI, the floor cardiology team, and the interventional team was essential for this case. This case highlights just one of the many amazing cases our trainees see here at UCSF, as well as the breadth and depth of pathology across three amazing sites. Our Moffat Long Hospital, County Hospital, which is a safety net hospital, and our San Francisco VA Medical Center, all of which have state-of-the-art care where our fellows take center stage in the diagnosis and management of patients and are intimately involved with every critically ill cardiac patient. Our fellows also mentioned this, but it's worth emphasizing further that one of the other things that defines our training program is the degree to which our core fellows have significant graduated autonomy. We don't hold back, and we let them do quite a bit early on with the appropriate supervision. At the county, they first assist with STEMIs in the cath lab and the help place balloon pumps. They do device checks, transvenous pacers, TEEs. They help with the imaging during MitraClips and TAVRs at our San Francisco VA and work with a whole host of advanced fellows at Moffitt Long to provide amazing care. Our fellows get very comprehensive and rigorous training in their first two clinical years. By the end of their second year, they're able to function in many cases at an attending level. Seeing this transition over fellowship is one of the most rewarding parts of my job as program director. Given that it's interview season, we get a lot of questions about what we are looking for among people interested in our training program. First and foremost, I would say we're looking for people with passion in a particular area, whatever it may be, something that drives a trainee to want to help advance how we practice cardiology. It's great to see trainees during an interview really light up about something they've done or really want to do, and I feel it's our job 
to really help them realize that passion in training. We don't think one size fits all, and we have crafted several training pathways for fellows who've been interested in emerging areas, including cardio-oncology, critical care cardiology, global health cardiology, medical education, and artificial intelligence, to name a few. Our training program doesn't lock anyone into a specific mold of training. It tries to provide everyone with choices and the tools they need to be successful, whether that's being a basic translational or clinical researcher, an educator, an administrator, a leading practitioner out in the community, an advocate for health policies, or an entrepreneur, or any combination of the above. We like to think that we have something for everyone here. In fact, we've had several fellows go into industry or who've started companies that have been very successful. The Bay Area's proximity with tech companies is certainly a great benefit for those who are interested in taking advantage of partnering with industry. San Francisco is also a very richly diverse city with people from all different backgrounds and cultures, and it's a city that values that diversity. Likewise, UCSF and our training program highly values diversity as we select our trainees, and whether that means that someone who's underrepresented in medicine or has traveled a long distance to get a career in medicine, we take notice of that. It's amazing the people you will meet here. Some of our international medical graduates have come from developing countries or war-torn countries with minimal resources and have risen to the challenge of being very successful here in the U.S. We also have folks who have grown up in the U.S. and were the very first person in their family to go to college. UCSF has a rich history over the last several decades in supporting marginalized groups. This is very well outlined in our Office of Diversity website, which I encourage everyone to visit. We seek fellows from a wide array of backgrounds as they will be best able to take care of a diverse array of patients. That trickles all the way up to our fellowship and division. You'll see an emphasis here from the division to focus on health disparities and anti-racism during training. We actually have an anti-racism working group and anti-racism journal club within the division. We feel that these are important aspects that trainees should be more aware of in order to better take care of patients. Finally, I'd like to say that many of the training programs featured here on Cardio Nerds have been wonderful collaborators and colleagues, especially during this very difficult year with COVID-19, which has made us rethink how we train our fellows and interview applicants in a more virtual environment. We have a program director listserv, and there have been countless examples of sharing of knowledge and resources across programs that many fellows can benefit from. Cardio Nerds, I think, fits in with this mold very well. So thanks again for allowing UCSF to take part, and I look forward to working with you again in the future. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Vivian Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karen Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. I think there was some background noise. Can we do that again? That was me chewing. <laughs> Emily's eating popcorn over here. <laughs>